Thanks, guys. Welcome. Uh, my name is Bill. For those of you who don't know me, this is Nick, and this is the head of the family, Ben, that's, that's come up with him here. Yeah, for Ben, for Ben. Show-stealer, show-stealer. Uh, just I want to introduce again, I introduced it last night that uh, I've I actually been lied to uh, my whole life in my education. I said I was, went to school in the 40s and everyone laughed at me, uh, but it's true. Uh, I was 33 when I became a Christian. I still was an evolutionist because that's the way the world had trained me. Uh, it took several years of actually searching the truth. So I'm saying that because there may be some people here today that this is all new data. This is all new information. And so uh, my encouragement is for you to participate, to listen. If we can help in any way along that journey, please let us know. Bruce will be giving plenty of information to chew on. But after that, we can help as we go on. Also, his newsletter is in the back. I encourage you if you want an ongoing relationship with his ministry. Uh, I get it. I enjoy it. So please uh, look at that. And Nick? You're here. You want to open us in prayer? Yeah. You, uh, it's Nick's group, by the way, that did a lot of the background work uh, to bring it. What about your group? Tell them quick. Quick. You right. get 30-second advertisement. All right. We, we get together. We have kids. We bring our kids. Kids learn. The kids teach parents. We have a lot of fun. We do a little bit of yelling yeah. and uh, disrupt your group. You do a lot of yelling, and it does interrupt my group. It, yeah, it does. This, is, this yeah. is Thursday night this mayhem takes place. Uh, if you've got young kids, you're a parent, and you're looking for a group of people with a similar goal to raise your kids in Christ, uh, good group, Thursday night. Uh, Fun group. Often yeah. served dinner, but he's never invited me. That's not true. Oh, go, okay. We're in church. Okay. Uh, go, you're... I'm going to pray. <laughs> Uh, next time Ben's doing the talking, <laughs> open in prayer. Oh, thank you, guys. Dear God, heavenly, awesome, amazing Father, thank you for this opportunity we have here, here on this stage, in this world, in the reality you have created that so accurately reflects you. Science, all of world, all of creation screams it. And wow, you haven't left us alone or to wonder, but so that we could know. Let us open our ears and our hearts this morning to, to see, to be, to be just enlightened to your great and amazing deal. Thank you for this opportunity we have. Amen. Amen. And we get to introduce Bruce. His wife, Robin, is in the back. And so you got it. Thank you so much. Yep. Well, good morning. And by the way, I fall into that same category where I grew up totally being trained to separate science, which is considered reality in the world around us, from religion or the Bible, which even sadly, way too many Christians, and I think they'll be in heaven someday because they've accepted their Savior, but they still treat God's Word as if it doesn't say what it means or mean what it says, but it does. The God who could write the DNA code, the God who could create the entire universe out of nothing, and then create people to fellowship with him, don't you think he would be able to communicate in a way we'd be able to clearly understand what he's saying? And that's exactly what he's done. That's what he's given us. But too often we treat it as if it doesn't mean what it says. And that's what we're going to talk about throughout these sessions. Now, the topic this morning, oh, by the way, just so you know who, what my background is, I am a research scientist, a research leader for almost 30 years for the Dow Chemical Company. I don't have a degree in theology. I'm not a pastor, and I was a total agnostic coming out of college. God was irrelevant, but he grabbed my attention. I, I was brought to almost the point of death with double pneumonia and losing 20 pounds and on pure oxygen while still hallucinating. The doctors told my wife I was probably going to die. Uh, and yet I just, within a week, it was, people were praying, and it just, I got better um, for no particular reason. The doctors couldn't explain it. They had me on the antibiotics so strong that it burned as it went in my arm, and yet it was doing no good. Uh, but that caught my attention, is, is just earning a bunch of money, and I had a one-year-old son. We've since, we've since had four kids total, um, and having a nice house, and is that all there is, and then you die, and then it's done. I thought it was, but God wove Christians into my life, and then a speaker came when we occasionally would go to the church we were married in to talk about this ridiculous subject called creation, 
And I realized when he started talking about the worldwide flood, if that was true, and that's what laid down the rock layers and the fossils and all this geological stuff we see over the planet, that flood did that, then everything I had been taught about biology and geology and anthropology and the age of things, it all had to be wrong. You couldn't have it both ways because that flood would have laid things down rapidly and recently. And the more I studied, the more I realized that was absolutely true. And it changed my whole course of direction of my life. I left Dow Chemical at um, 49 after a very successful career with 17 patents and earning tens of millions of dollars for the company. Didn't get any of that money. But I had loved science. I've always loved science. It's studying what God has made. And for the last 17 years, and even before that, I've been speaking and teaching and writing on the evidence for creation. And that's all we're going to do is just examine what does the evidence show. Now, this morning's topic is the awe. got to say that again. The awe of God. And you see some of the pictures, and we're going to get to that, where we look at some of these incredible animals and creatures God has made. And I picked a lot of them that I had never heard of, and the books, these devotionals, are just filled page after page of these really cool things God has done. Um, but we're not going to start there. As I started to think about this sermon and this talk, I started to think, what is the biggest issue for people not wanting to believe in God and honor God and follow God and obey God and just even pretend he doesn't exist. What's the biggest issue? And I decided you could boil it all down to they've lost their awe of who God really is. They've just lost it. And then because I'm an engineer, I've got to ask why. Why have so many people all around us lost the awe of who God actually is? And I boiled that down to two issues. One, it's been trained out of them. Our entire education, media, museum system for three generations in our nation has chosen to leave God out, assume the Bible doesn't mean what it actually says, and explain things in another way. And it really goes back 100 years or more but it's become locked into the entire education system. So generation after generation, they're trained, God is irrelevant. God didn't make everything. The Big Bang made everything. God didn't make life. Chemicals came alive. All over the universe, they're popping alive with aliens. Your kids, your grandkids, they're watching all these alien movies. It's reinforcing that idea. That a bacteria changed into a human being. That is taught as fact and reality in every museum in the country, in every textbook in our nation, through this process of evolution. And it just drives away the awe of who God really is and what he's done. That's one half of it. The second half is that every child is born with that awe. When they look at a flower, you can see it in their face, or a butterfly, or a sunset. I think when our grandchild, Lily, was, I think, three or four, we walked out in the backyard, and we had a big backyard, and, and I'm so busy, I don't have a good time to take care of it. And by the way, I noticed you guys have rocks for yards out in California. It's like, what is that? I'm from Michigan. We're surrounded by lakes and waters to be used, so we have these beautiful green lawns, but my lawn's just full of clover, and which has a weed, and the whole backyard was just filled with a white cloud of flowers, okay? And I'm looking out the back door, and it's like, oh, look at all those weeds. And the three-year-old Lily comes up, and she looks out, and she That's the perspective. She was in awe of what God had made. But life trains it out of us. Jesus said, in this life, you will have tribulations. You're going to be lied about. You're going to be cheated. You're going to be defamed. You're going to have financial problems. You're going to have health problems. You're going to have work problems piled one on top of another, on top of another, on top of another. It's going to happen to every one of us. And we live in an entertainment culture where we, entertainment is our focus of what's going to make us happy. And it won't 
So we have emotional problems. And it, we just lose the awe of God in the midst of it all. So between this fallen nature of, of creation, which we brought upon ourselves, which is a whole other sermon, and the training, every, the people around us just lose this awe. But what's the solution? Now, that's where we're going to go with this sermon. Now, I typically spend my time with the greatest book dealing with creation, which is Genesis. But I'm not going to do that this morning. We're going to go to the second greatest book of the whole scripture, all of the Bible, that deals with creation outside of Genesis. And that's the book of Job. Now, Job is literally the oldest pinned book in the Bible. Uh, Moses, in Genesis, writes about things that happened at the very start of time. The, where did everything come from? All of creation, where did life come from? Where did the universe come from? Where did stars? Where does it all come from? Why is it here? Now, Job was pinned, based on most experts who are theologians, and myself, who's kind of looked at it, about 4,000 years ago, and I based it on several things. Uh, first of all, it uh, contains incredible scientific insights throughout the book, dozens of them, things that weren't discovered for 4,000 years later during the, the age of science that developed in the 16, 17, 1800s. Um, second, Job lived about 200 years, and Abraham lived about 200 years. Before that, people were living, before the flood, seven, eight, 900 years. Immediately after the flood, Lifetime started to drop down into the 400, 300. By the time of Abraham, that was around 200, which is the same as Job. By the time of Moses, 3,400 years ago, people are living 80, 90 years. Now, most of that is genetic deterioration, entropy. Every human generation has more mistakes than their parents in their DNA. And then they have another generation, and they add more mistakes onto the mistakes. And at some point, that just incredibly deteriorated lifetimes. And the flood totally changed the environment of the earth. So you had lots more radiation from the sun, lots less protection, further deterioration, and so on. So that's where I put it about 4,000 years ago. And I think that's fairly accurate, when it was actually penned. It's not written as a book of poetry. It's written as an actual, factual account of history where we see the veil pulled back and Satan interacting with God and a challenge being thrown out of uh, why do people serve and honor you. This book address, addresses that second thing that destroys awe more than any other book in the Bible, the issue of pain and suffering. And it gives the ultimate solution and hope in a way we wouldn't expect. Uh, so that's what we're going to jump into. Now, You've all heard it. This is a well-taught church, uh, but a great story is worth retelling. So I'm going to recap Job just very briefly. Job was like the Bill Gates of his day. He was filthy rich, except he wasn't like Bill Gates in that he was called the most righteous man on the entire earth by God himself. God selected Job for what he was about to take place in his life. God knew this was going to happen before the foundation of the earth because he's outside of time. God knew Adam and Eve were going to fall and all creation was going to be cursed as a result of it with all the pain and agony we're going to have to go through. None of it surprises God. Nothing that ever happens in your life will ever surprise God and it's happening because he's allowing it or you don't serve an almighty God. So Keep these things in mind, because these are important as we go through the things that destroy our awe. So here's Job. He has a great big family of seven sons and three daughters. He's got 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 oxen, 500 donkeys, and a huge household of workers and servants that work with him, and he treats them well. He's honored in his city. He sits at the city gates. He's one of the judges of the city. He does everything he can to honor obey, and glorify God. And that's what God testifies to. Now, none are sin-free, but he is a great man of God. The Billy Graham times 10 of his day, okay? That's Job. Satan comes and says, well, he just does all this because you've given him a bunch of stuff. God says, let's find out. So he allows 
all 10 of Job's children to be killed in an instant. Can you imagine the emotional devastation? I can't imagine one of my children dying. It's just not meant to be that way. The pain is unbelievable, all 10. Incredible emotional pain. Then he allows every cent of his wealth to be destroyed and taken away. He is totally destitute. Then he comes down with a disease that is unbearable in his pain. Think cancer times 10. Every inch of his body covered with oozing, bloody, pouring, pussy sores from the top of his head to the soles of his feet to the point the only relief he can get is take a broken piece of pottery and gouge and scrape himself so that pain overcomes the pain of the boils. This man, in my opinion, suffered more than any human being that has ever lived on this planet with the exception of Jesus Christ who took the penalty of every human being that ever would, did, or will live upon himself simultaneously. The penalty for all of our sins. Unbelievable pain. Intellectual, emotional, physical, all at the same time. But he's still in the midst of all that, when his wife says, she's in pain too, curse God and die. Just kill yourself, in essence. But Job wouldn't do it. He knew life was given only by God. And here was his response to all that. Job said, naked I came out of my mother's womb, naked I shall return. The Lord gave, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In the midst of all this, I could not do that. I just, I don't, that's the character of this man, okay? And in all this, Job sinned not, charging God foolishly. See, he knew if it was happening, God had to have allowed it. But he didn't. But what did he do? He said in his very first statement, you know, after the, the kind of opening chapters where we understand what's going on and why it's going on, he said, Cursed is the day I was born. That's how much pain he was in. Better I'd never been born. And over and over again, in a 35-chapter dialogue back and forth that's about to happen, he, he never blamed God, but he cried out in agony, Why? I've done my best. Why is this happening? Now, here's the greatest test. Those things weren't the greatest test. The greatest test were the three friends that came after that, colleagues. And they kept chapter after chapter saying, if you'd have just worked harder, if you'd have just been a better follower of the Lord, you'd have been blessed and these things wouldn't have happened. In other words, works salvation. If we do this, God has to give us that. We're not, God isn't God, we're God. That's what that attitude is. We can cover our own sins by just our actions. It will never work. It's the ultimate blasphemy against our Creator. We deserve what happens to us. We deserve we, the wages of our sin, our death. We've earned those wages. But in the mightiest act of all love, God covers our sins with His blood. And that's the only way it can happen, okay? We can never be good enough. We can never do enough. We can never pray enough. We can never pay the price that we deserve for what we've done. But that's what those people were trying to get Job to admit. And Job wouldn't do it because it would have been a lie. And he knew he hadn't brought it upon himself. Not this particular thing. Not because of his actions. So there, after 34 chapters of that, back and forth, we come to the longest monologue in the entire Bible where God is talking. Word after word, sentence after sentence, verse after verse, chapter after chapter, God is trying to tell Job something. Now, by the way, in the middle of that monologue is one of my favorite verses of the Bible, um, where Job says this. In the midst of his pain, he's looking for relief. He says, I know my Redeemer. What's a Redeemer? One who comes and brings things back to the way they ought to be, who restores perfection, who pays the price for our sin. 
that redeems things. My Redeemer lives, and he shall stand in the final days upon the earth. Now, that hasn't happened yet, but it's going to, and Jesus promised it over and over and over again. If I leave, I shall return. If I go away, I make a place for you so that I can bring you to that place. Over and over again, he said, I shall return. I will come back, the angel said, to the mountain where from, from hence I left. It's still going to happen, folks. We live as if it isn't, but it is. Things are reaching a wrapping up period. And there it is, 4,000 years ago written down. Now, how did Job know that? Well, I have a suspicion. Adam walked daily with God in the Garden of Eden before he sinned. Total fellowship. No lies, no deception, no greed, no hoarding, no hatred. That was life on earth. But once he sinned, it all entered in, and, and now we're all living behind this cloak, this facade of perfection, when inside we know there's all sorts of problems. None of that existed. But God talked with Adam. He told Adam where things came from. He told him how creation happened. He told him when it happened. He told him where the stars and skies and animals came from. And Adam would have told his sons. And by the way, people lived so long back then that Noah's life overlapped with the sons of Adam. Noah wouldn't have been able to talk directly with Adam's sons. And they would have known these things. And he would have written them down. And I think God had already told Adam what the plan of redemption was going to be and why they need, he needed the tithe and why there needed to be sacrifices and there was going to be an ultimate sacrifice coming and a redeemer was coming. And Job had heard these things. I suspect that's true. So now God comes to address this issue of why is this happening to me, says Job. And God starts right here. And in Sunday school hour, we, we, we heard this same question being posed in the book of Romans by Paul. Where were you, says God, when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare if you're the one who has the understanding. By the way, that's the whole world around us. They know everything. Science shows everything. But where were they when the very foundations were being put forth? They, nobody has a time machine. Everything's based on assumptions and presumptions. And then scientists tend to fit the data in. Tonight, we're going to deal with that really, really clearly. I hope you can all come to the night session. It, it, it really gets into the science of all this. And then God goes on for four more chapters but he never answers Job's plea and his questions. He just declares all these things he's made, the animals, the weather cycle, the streams, the, the stars. And, and then in chapter 40 and 41, he, he focuses in on two of the greatest creatures he's ever made that Job had seen, and they're an exact description in chapter 40 of an Apatosaurus dinosaur. There's no other animal that fits that description. Huge tail, bars of iron, towers above man, eats vegetation, uh, thunders as it walks. It, it's not an elephant. It's got a little wimpy tail. It's, it sounds, you, you read that description to any three-year-old and ask them what animal it is, and they'll say, oh, that's a dinosaur. Job had seen one. They would take it on the ark. Dinos cultures around the world for thousands of years talked about things called dragons. The Bible talks about dragons. The word dinosaur wasn't invented until 1842, and the man who found the bones and called it a dinosaur, which is a scientific term, at the same time referred to these bones as dragon bones. It's like calling a dog a canine, scientifically, and a dog a dog as normal language. He saw them as the same creature. And all the cultures of the world that rose up after the flood have pictures and depictions and descriptions and stories of these great beasts. They've since went extinct, probably thousands of years ago. But we knew about them, and they're in right there in the Bible. It's talking about things that sound just like dinosaurs. So all these things were created along with Adam. Now, here's Job's response to God's four-chapter monologue of talking about what he had made, talking about creation. Job's immediate response, now we're the... Chapter 42, the last or next to the last chapter, Job says, I know, he's talking back to God, you can do anything. No thought can even be withheld from you. He knows our very thinking. And I've heard of you with my ears, 
probably all the way back from Adam, passed down to him, was knowledge of God and what he'd done by hearing and reading. But notice what he says next. But now mine eye have seen you. His response, coming into the very presence of God, was to realize the gulf that existed, the gap that's there between our sinfulness and our greatest, the greatest, most holy, righteous man on earth. Realize the gap between his sinfulness and the holiness of a mighty, holy God. And the response is to repent. And that needs to be our response if we're ever going to get to heaven. First, we have to realize our sinfulness. And then we have to accept what he's done for us that we could never do. While you were still sinners, while you were still sinners, not after we cleaned ourselves up, Christ died for us. Only his actions. Now, I highlighted this line. Did God physically, in physical form, stand in front of Job and give him this four-chapter monologue? No. God's a spirit. Okay? So what does he mean, my eyes have seen you? Things that are important, God makes crystal clear. He repeats them multiple times, and they show up in the New Testament and the Old Testament. I started last night with one verse out of Romans. Now I'm in the New Testament, chapter 1. And it says, Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His very power and nature have been clearly seen, being understood by what's been made. So people are without excuse. What did Job see? God described what he'd made. And by looking at what he'd made, Job said, now I've seen God's very power and nature. In essence, seen a representation of who God is. That's what it says in Romans, Old Testament, New Testament, telling us the same thing. So this whole issue of creation, where it came from, and whether to believe the world or the Bible, is really, really important. Now, I want to end this section before I go on to the awe of God by looking at what he's made, by wrapping up the book. So, in the end, God blessed Job's faithfulness and not lying and accepting the lie that he could just earn good stuff by being the right kind of actions. He blessed the second half of his life by doubling. 14,000 sheep instead of seven. 6,000 camels instead of three. Double the oxen, double the donkeys. And then he gave him seven sons and seven, three daughters. So now he had ten kids. Now, if you look at that, it looks like God doubled all his possessions, but then he just replaced the kids. He didn't double them. Why didn't he double the kids? This is, this is a really important, profound teaching. If you just read through it, you breeze over it, you miss it. At the beginning, Job had ten kids. At the end, he had ten more kids. God did double the number of Job's kids. Once we die, it's not like we're gone. It's not like those kids no longer exist. Job still had 20 children. Ten have just stepped through a door we call death into a spiritual eternity. Their soul and their spirit is not gone. They aren't wiped out. They've just physically taken the penalty for their sin. See, if you think God didn't double the children, it's as if death, that's it, you're gone. You no longer exist. But by only giving Job 10 more children, we're being shown he did double everything. Our loved ones, when they die, they're not gone. They've just stepped through that door. And they're either going to spend eternity in paradise with a totally holy, just God, or because God is holy, he has to be just, they're going to spend eternity eternally separated from him. And they choose which one they're going to do by either accepting what he's done for us or not. There's no other way. If there would be some other way to heaven, Jesus pleaded with agony in the Garden of Eden, sweating drops of blood. Please, Father, make another way because I'm about to take on the penalty and the sins of every human being that has ever has, is, or will live. Because God's outside of time. Jesus was God hanging on the cross. He's taking on your penalty 
right now today because God inhabits the past, future, and present all at the same time. That's what Jesus was doing. And what was God's response? There is no other way. How cruel if there was some other way to heaven and Jesus is begging for it and God says, no, you just go die and then I'll let a bunch of people who work really hard get into heaven too. See how that didn't make any sense? It's the only way. So with that in mind, let's look at the lessons and then we're going to get on to the awe of God. It's a fabulous book on the insight into God's character. Pain and suffering is not caused by God. We brought it upon ourselves. If we lived forever, we'd be forever separated from God. There has to be death or there'd be no reunion, reunion with God. He cursed all of creation for our benefit so we wouldn't be forever separated. But he allows it. And the pain will build perseverance. The struggles will build strength. The problems will build empathy. They'll build faith. But we've got to trust God, which is the second point. Trusting God during times of suffering, it will be rewarded. And if not with those things that build our character, then after death, God is the great leveler. They'll be rewarded. Trust him. He's allowing it for a reason. I know it hurts, but he is. And la next, Job was, ends by reminding us that life isn't all there is. Our life here on earth is like a flash in the pan, like a mist that rises in the morning and gone, like a flower that blooms and then fades in the afternoon. All these things are talked about in the Psalms. It's so short compared to eternity that what we're going through, it's going to be gone soon. Trust God. And we're not just gone when we die. We're either going to live for eternity in paradise or not. And last, focusing on God during these times of trouble. Focusing on his nature and his love and his perseverance. And the only thing we can touch tangibly and see visibly are the things he's made. Creation. And knowing there's no other possibility for why they're there than a supernatural creation by God. They aren't there because of some slow natural process. And that's what these sessions are about. It moves us past focusing on ourselves and our problems and returns our focus to who he is. That's why God spent four chapters dealing with that. That's the ultimate solution from that book. It's not easy to do, but it's like praise. After a while, it returns our focus to God instead of ourselves. Now, let's look at that awesomeness of God by looking at what he's made. I'm going to start with real little creatures. Now, this one, and all these are in the books, and I've kind of, the, the dates are different books, but a lot of you have all the books, um, and there's lots more. But this is a little tiny animal called a tartigrade. Now, a farmer, I took this about four years ago in Wisconsin. We were visiting our son. We went to a corn maze, and this is like 100 acres. It's like three football fields wide. It took us four hours to walk our way through all these paths in this maze looking for hidden things. But he had cut down the corn in such a way that he had made a picture of this little microscopic animal called a tardigrade. He's also known as a water bear. Now, he's the only animal, smallest animal. He's not a microorganism. He's an actual animal that has legs. Uh, and he's only... 0.5 millimeters long. Now, if you hold your thumb and your forefinger as close as you can get it without them touching, that's how big that guy is. I mean, it's really, really little. With your naked eye, you just miss him. Now, here's what he looks like. Isn't he cute? It's just a little teddy bear. Just floats around in the water. He's got eight legs. He sucks up other little stuff with a little nozzle thing. I just think he's darling. I want to cuddle up in bed with him. Actually, I probably do some nights. I just don't know it. Well, this is the cool thing God has done. God decided, for whatever reason, let's make a little animal that's almost indestructible. Okay? So scientists started to discover this. In the space program, they looked, they looked at things. There are any animals that can like, live for a long time without oxygen. And they discovered this guy that had that ability. They uh, put him in a spot where they pulled out all the oxygen with just pure nitrogen. Um, and he kind of flops over, left him there for a week, and then they let some oxygen back in and just stands back up again and starts moving around, okay? Pretty cool. They thought, well, that would be useful in space. 
So then they thought, well, there's a lot of radiation in space. I wonder how resistant he is to that. So they upped the amount of radiation a thousand times higher than when you're out sitting on the beach, beach getting skin cancer because you're laying there in the sun, okay? A thousand times higher. And then they tracked him through generations, and it didn't have any effect on the offspring or him. He just functioned perfectly well. So that, now they're getting really excited. That's really cool. I wonder if he can take high pressure, like, you know, launches take a lot of pressure. And so they just, they kept upping the pressure. They put him in a chamber, and they increased the pressure, and like with an air compressor, more and more and more, to the point where it was a thousand atmospheres of pressure, like hundreds of times more pressure than the bottom of the deepest oceans. And it never had any effect on him. He still functioned perfectly under all that pressure. Or it must have, there's like an immediate adjustment of pressure inside and outside of his body. Because if you did that with most things, it would just compress to the point where you would get crushed. But not this guy. By the way, he comes in lots of varieties. Here's another one. This, this is like his cousin. Not quite so cute. Um, but still has eight legs. And he's got a little sucker mouth for sucking things in. Uh, well, let's try to boil him to death. That's how you kill bacteria. It put him in boiling water and boiled it and boiled it and boiled it. Uh, now, it stops at 212 degrees Fahrenheit while it's evaporating. But as long as they boiled it, he didn't die. Couldn't boil him to death. So let's see if we can just take the water away. He lives in water. They took all the water away. They've actually found these guys in tombs that are thousands of years old, all dried up and crusty. They put a drop of water on him, bloop, and he starts swimming around. He just goes dormant. And comes back alive. And last, they can't freeze him to death. Took him down as close as they could get to absolute zero. You know, most things, when you freeze them, the cells pop open because the water expands. Uh, didn't happen with him. Now, here's the point. There has to be thousands, if not tens of thousands, of different chemicals and programming changes before any of these abilities could be in place. You take something that doesn't have the ability to be boiled and live, and you put it in boiling water, it's not going to adapt. It's going to die. You take something that needs oxygen to live, and you take away the oxygen, and it hasn't already been programmed to have that ability, it's going to die. All that stuff had to be programmed into this creature from the moment of creation. It's not just because it, you don't adapt abilities you don't need, and you don't need them until they happen. So these are all designed to show the awe of the one who made it. He's like the superhero of eternal life. Now, he doesn't live forever. And there's, you hit him with a blowtorch, he'll die. But look at what it, the abilities he does have. It's just stunning. That's number one. Number two, superhero of God. God invented the superpower of invisibility. He created a creature that can become invisible. Now, this is just cool. This is flat out cool. Forget the Fantastic Four. We've got the sea sapphire. This is what he looks like. He's this sapphire blue color. Now, why do things look blue? I, I look out and I see someone with a yellow shirt. Why is their shirt yellow? White light comes down. All the colors of the rainbow get absorbed except yellow, the wavelength of yellow, and it bounces off. So yellow isn't absorbed, and that's why we see yellow. A blue shirt's because everything is absorbed but blue. A green because everything is absorbed but green. This guy, everything's absorbed except this sapphire blue. And now inside his body, it's like all a very transparent fluid. And his shell is made of a bunch of little layer after layer of little plates, like a butterfly's wings. Just have these little, little plates. Turns out when this guy turns, so the angle of the light is different, now all of the colors of the spectrum pass right through. Instead of being absorbed, the blue, the green, the yellow, the orange, the purple, it just passes right through front and back, goes to the bottom of the seashore floor, bounces off the bottom of the sea floor, and then comes right back through him again. He literally, it's like looking through a plate of glass because all the colors now pass back and forth right through him. Now I'll show a little movie clip. It's going to go in a rotating flip. Watch him as he's floating. When he turns... He disappears, and you can see the seafloor underneath of him. Watch this. So there he is. He just turned. Did you see that? When he turns, he becomes invisible, and the light just passes right through him. It's called the sea sapphire, an invisible animal. 
Isn't that cool? Now again, everything has to be absolutely perfect. Those crystals, those little plates have to be spaced exactly right. They have to exactly the right composition, the right characteristic. His body has to be filled with clear fluids. It has to happen only when the creature could turn. And evolutionists will say, wow, look what that critter evolved so that he could escape someone trying to eat him. It didn't evolve it. It's all designed. And if any little bit of it is missing, nothing works. It's of no use. He's just spent biological energy creating stuff that is of no use. It has to all be there in exactly the right place and time. Okay, now we get to the superhero of genius. The piece of creation that reflects God's genius. And it's not the human brain. It's a honeybee. A honeybee has a brain about the size of a grain of sand. Now, for about 50 years, we've known honeybees are really smart, and they're able to communicate things inside of a hive so the rest of the bees can go find stuff. And scientists studied them and figured out how they communicate, and it's really kind of cool. But Princeton's, Princeton's researchers from Princeton University, about 10 to 15 years ago, uh, they came out with a paper where they had studied how quick can honeybees learn and then transfer their learned knowledge onto the other bees, like in a hive. So they developed an experiment. They had a set of hives where they somehow marked the bees that were from a certain hive. I forget, but I think it was like maybe some sort of radiation marker. And then they put a really rich source of nectar about 200 feet away. And so they know when the bees from a certain hive show up for, at that source. Well, as soon as the bees would show up, they would start a stopwatch. And then they went to time. How long does it take that bee to go back and tell the other bees from this hive where the food is, and the other bees from that hive show up at that same flower? And that's what they did. They started the stopwatch. And the bee, what it does, you see this bee right here? It's kind of, it's kind of like wiggling. It's, it's kind of blurry. What the bee does, it comes back, and it wiggles its behind, okay? It just walks through the hive, and its little behind is just wiggling and wiggling and wiggling, and the other bees are watching. Ooh, what's he doing? What's he doing? Now, this is what scientists figured out. The first bee to find a flower will fly back to the hive, and he knows exactly what the angle is from where the sun is at to where the flower is from the starting point of the hive, 115 degrees. So based on the up and down reference point of the honeycombs, he will dance in a direction 115 degrees. And that will show the rest of the bees what direction they have to fly. And then he'll either dance in a figure eight or dance in a bunch of circles. And one of them says that food is less than 100 feet away. And the other dance tells them it's more than 100 feet away. So they know how, which direction to go and how far to go. And they're looking for that source of food. And it only took 10 minutes. After 10 minutes, the bees are back at that flower from that hive. So then they moved it 200 feet away. And again, it only took 10 minutes. So then, they, once the bee, they, shoot, they take the food away, they wait a while till there's none around, they put it four, 400, 600 feet away. It didn't seem to be time-related. It was still only about 10 minutes. didn't take that long to get back. They learned, they came. Then they moved it 800 feet away. They brought the food out, they opened it up, they turned on their detector, and there's like hundreds of bees from that hive waiting for them to show up with the food, already there. The little grain of sand brain had outsmarted the Princeton researchers. They had calculated the pattern, they'd calculated the distance, and they went there and waited for them to show up with the food instead of going back to the hive. Isn't that cool? The awesomeness of God is just stunning. Okay, now, I only have about 10 minutes left, so I'm going to rush through a few of these. I want you to see these little two to two and a half, three minute videos that I'm producing. One of the resources back there is a flash drive. It has 19 of my 45 minute lectures. They cost $10,000 each to film, filmed in the Grand Canyon, at Zion, at Petrified Forest, in Science Huntsville Science Rocket Museum, and so on, all over the United States. Um, and they also has 60 of these little short two to three minute videos. When you sign up for my newsletter list, um, go to my website, and the very first thing on the homepage is the without a doubt videos, because God doesn't want us to have a doubt about his 
existence, and he does it through creation. And I want you to see what they look like, because when they come out about every two weeks, you can watch them. It's that cool reminder that God's behind it all for us. And then just kind of send a link to some friends to put God's awesomeness in front of others. But here's what they look like. I want you to see what these videos show. So bring it up a little bit. You know, God told us to take dominion over creation in the book of Genesis. That means to study, understand, and control it. Now, why? Because we can learn so much from it. I mean, we can even learn from a slug. A slug, you say? Yeah. It turns out that there's a certain kind of slug that lives in northern Europe that slugs, when they move, they leave a slime trail. It's just kind of a sticky, gooey, watery thing. You can actually see their trail as they're crawling along. Well, scientists started to study this slug from Europe, and they realized their slime is very, very elastic, which means you can stretch it and it'll snap back, and very, very sticky. Now, for years, scientists have used things like super glue to bind up wounds, uh, and they thought, it's a little toxic and it turns a little brittle. What we need is a really flexible glue that will stay sticky. And they discovered this slug slime and thought these has the perfect characteristics for glue. Now don't get too excited about you know having some slug slime slapped onto your cut because it takes a lot of slugs to form enough slime to fit the market. And you know, slug slime farms aren't exactly practical because the slugs only exude this kind of slime when they're scared because they don't want birds. Like if a bird's flying overhead, out comes the sticky slug slime glue. And if the bird comes and tries to pull the slug off the sidewalk, it's stuck to the sidewalk. So the only way to get the sticky glue is to scare the slugs. And slug slime farms aren't exactly practical. I mean, you set up a movie theater, you put all your slugs on the seats, and you show them movies of scary birds, and then you scrape the slug slime sticky glue off the seats. I mean, not exactly practical. So what do they do? They figured out how to synthesize it. And we now have the formula for sticky slug slime glue that is currently being used to seal up wounds. Isn't that cool? because we figured out what God did first. So we can learn from creation, develop products that benefit us in a multitude of ways, even slug slime glue. What a slugger of an idea. So that's the idea. Just keep this stuff in front of people. By the way, my lips weren't synced there. That's a PowerPoint issue with a long cable. It does, it's not like that on the flash drive. Um, okay, couple more, then we'll wrap up. This one I always use in the overseas public education school systems when we do an hour-long science assembly to connect the Bible and God and what he said with science and with history and with everything else they're learning in school, showing they're totally connected. And evolution can't possibly be true. And this fish is like a superfish with a superpower. And I'll show you what his superpower is in a second, too. You see, that's like a salmon that lives in salt water, okay, lives his whole life in salt water but has to lay their eggs in fresh water. If the Oopu fish lays its eggs in the ocean, they're going to die, there'll be no more generations, goes extinct. But it lives only off the island of Hawaii, in that one little geographical area in that ocean, and the only source of fresh water is at the top of this 420-foot waterfall that drops down through the air. If it lays its, she lays her eggs here, they'll get flushed into the ocean, and they'll die has to be at the top, way upstream of the waterfall. How is that fish going to get up that waterfall? Huge question. Scientists were really curious, and they were studying it. I asked the students, and they'll say, they've heard of flying fish. They'll say, well, maybe it flew, except flying fish glide. They can't fly 400 foot tall high. Can't happen. It's a scientific impossibility. Other students will say, well, maybe it'll climb. And I'll say, well, yeah, maybe like Spider-Man. And then I'll tell them, Right idea, wrong movie. There's another movie, and these kids overseas, Philippines, Vanuatu, whatever, Fiji, they've watched American movies. And I, I can do this. I'll go, dun, 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 What movie? Mission Impossible. They all know it. They'll shout it out. The hero climbs up like a 150-foot glass tower in Dubai using suction cups on his fingers. 
And that's what God put on this fish. Only fish in the world has a suction cup on its chest. And it goes and it slams itself against the wall and shoves with his back fin and then sticks and shoves and sticks and shoves and over a one to two day period climbs 420 feet, jumps into the river, swims upstream and lays its eggs. And then they grow into little fishlings and they get flushed back into the ocean. Isn't that cool? Now, evolution will say, wow, that is so useful. Look what evolution did so that fish could survive in a different environment. Exactly. Now, the kids hear that. Very credible, sincere, knowledgeable, smart teachers and professors tell them that. Little change, lots of time. It's very useful, must have happened. And that's all the further they'll think through it. But let's just think about that. One day, I mean, first of all, if the fins are just partially fused, they don't work. A suction cup has to be perfect or it's useless. So that's pretty astounding that you could have a perfect suction cup on one generation and no suction cup on another because it just has those fins underneath of it. So let's say a little baby fish is born one day and it has a suction cup there. It's like, Mama! What's this thing on my stomach? Mama, I, I, I don't know, son. Maybe you should go slam yourself against the wall bump, and push yourself to the top of the waterfall. Well, if it needed to do that before it had the suction cup, it would be dead. And if it didn't have the suction cup and did need to do it, it would be dead. The instincts, the need, the desire, the equipment, the ability, it all has to be there at once or nothing works. It's so obvious. God has made these creatures so we will know he made them fully formed, fully functional, supernaturally, not by some slow, natural, gradual process. It doesn't work. Again, the problem with evolution is that it doesn't scientifically work. And when we test it, when we try to make chemicals come alive, they never come alive. When we try to make matter or energy appear, it never appears. When we try to explain an animal with perfectly formed things, it doesn't work. Um, the marine iguana, another example. This guy lives in the Galapagos Islands. He's a vegetarian. He has to eat algae and stuff from the sea. But this island is surrounded by sharks. And he's like a big bratwurst sandwich. Really good. And sharks have lousy eyesight and wonderful hearing. When he's underwater, you could literally put a very sensitive microphone and you'll hear his heart going, boom, 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 boom. Sharks know that's not something that's normal. A fish's little tiny heart, they'll just zoom right in, eat him, and he's gone. So George and Frank are sitting on the shore and they're brothers and Frank goes in to eat and it's like, whoop, a shark jumps up and eats him. And George is like really hungry. It's like he's thinking, if I go in and get something to eat, I'm going to die. If I stay here on the shore and I don't eat, I'm going to die. What do I do? Well, this is what Frank figured out he needed to do. He turns off his heart, stops his heart. He can go in and swim for up to 40 minutes with no heartbeat. Get his food, plenty of time, crawl back out, and unfortunately, he hadn't yet evolved the ability to restart his heart, so he died anyway. No. He then restarts his heart. Again, hundreds, probably thousands of programming changes to the DNA. I mean, his body has to be able to function in a completely different way. Oxygen has to be able to flow without the heart beating. All sorts of abilities of every cell in his body has to change in order for him to function with no heartbeat. And he has to be able to turn it on and off at will. No, there's no other vertebrate in the known animal kingdom that can do that. God just made it to show his awesome creativity and power. The Godwit, I'm just going to rush through this. It has to fly 7,000 miles from Alaska down to New Zealand once it's done gorging itself at the end of the summer when it's getting really cold in Alaska. But there's no place to land, and these long spindly legs make it so that it can't take off. If it lands on the ocean, it can't take off again. So it's going to drown. It has to fly continuously for five to seven days, 24 hours a day, never stopping flap to flap its wings. 
Now, scientists calculated how much energy would be taken for that flight, and they realized it doesn't weigh enough. It doesn't have enough fat in its body because they estimated the amount of fat in the body based on this bird right before it took off. That was their mistake. Turns out it gorges itself for the last week, where if that bird was like a 200-pound man, one week later he would weigh 300 and, you know, 310 pounds. You know, that, it's just like now he's like the Goodyear blimp terrible aerodynamics and he still can't get that far because it's like the blimp flying instead of a nice streamlined bird so what the bird does after it's done eating it turns all that fat which is like full of water eliminates the water which is take all sorts of programming changes so it's like a beef real thick beef tallow doesn't have much fat but it's still too fat so in the day before it takes off all of its internal organs shrivel up. Its stomach goes paper thin. Its intestines go paper thin. You know, it, its kidney just turns into a flattened out sack. And then all the flat fills in, the fat fills in those cavities. So now it's really streamlined. It's got lots of food and energy, and it can fly for seven days nonstop and get to where it's going. Isn't that cool? No other bird does that. The God wit. I like it because it's not the evolution wit. It's the God wit. And it makes it. Now, here's where I want to end. God has created animals that can create light. And not just one. There are 38 different, totally different classifications of animals that all can mix variations of two different chemicals together. It's not even the same exact chemical. Variations of two different basic classifications together. These, these jellyfish create this beautiful blue light. There's plankton that when they hit the shore, the whole shore lights up. There's no lights there. That's the plankton making the light on the shore. There's mushrooms in the Amazon jungle that grow green. There are squid under the ocean that are like a billboard. They've got different chemicals that mix that make orange light and other chemicals that make green light and other chemicals that make blue light, and they can turn them on and off so it flashes all across their body like a continuously changing billboard. There's a creature that lives 20,000 feet below the ocean where not even a photon of light hits it that mixes the chemicals in a little bulb at the end of a stock to attract other fish so they can eat it. They've never, these other fish have never seen a light. Ooh, what's that light? Ooh, that looks really cool. Womp. And he's got his supper. And then we all know about fireflies. They just mix two chemicals together and turn on a light. Now, interesting little trivia fact the guy that discovered, you know, the, did the chemical analysis, and this goes back, they didn't have like these sticks you could break when I was growing up. Uh, this was really, we just developed chemoluminescence, uh, you know, that we could sell for sale. God invented it. We copied the chemicals in his design to make these little light sticks. So you, you snap them, the two chemicals mixed together. He got to name them, and he called, decided to name them Luciferine and Luciferess. Anybody notice the root of that those words? You heard it, right? Lucifer. Anybody recognize there's a place in the Bible? Lucifer has lots of names, Beelzebub and others. One of his titles, he's the angel of light. Because he's the great deceiver. And he presents himself as light as truth when he's really out to kill, destroy, and lie. And the, the guy named the ability to make light out of Lucifer. Now here's where I want to end. Those if you have accepted the incredible love of a God who has to judge sin or he's not holy, and his covers our sin, as, puts it as far as east from west, gives us a, a white clothes to come to the banquet feast of the king, covers our sins. We are the children of light. We have that light within us. But just like Paul very clearly articulated, there's not a minute or an hour or a day that goes by where our flesh nature, which has not been taken away, is fighting against the nature of light that's inside of us. But we have been guaranteed and promised by God. He has given us the power, if we would choose it, to resist the flesh na nature. Before we're saved, we don't even have that power. We can't resist it. We're going to give in. And Satan owns us. He's our father. But we're the children of light. We're the children of the day. 
And yet too often we still act as if we're living in darkness and we can't resist sin. God wouldn't tell us that this wasn't true. He says, let us who are of the day be sober and walk in that faith and love and not just the hope, but the actual assurance of salvation. In the book of John, John tells us that he tells us all these things about who Christ is and what he's done so that we may know that we are saved. Not just wonder, not just hope, but know it. Know we've come to that point of we can't do it on our own. We don't deserve to live forever. We are sinful. Please save us because we can't do it on our own. And when we really do that, we can know that God is willing none would perish. He will and has saved us. And then live that way, craving purity and righteousness and the reminder of God's great love, His great intelligence, His great compassion, His very existence is by looking at the, what He's made. And we see the beauty, and we see the love, and we see the compassion as we observe creation, and we see the genius. And it gives that confidence that He exists. And we know He exists, and we know who He is, we know even when bad things happen, he's still there. So it's such a great reminder. And it's, it's, the, it's the foundational purpose of why we're spending our time on this this weekend. So tonight we're going to look at a lot more really good, strong scientific evidence for why these mechanisms of evolution don't work and how we can know the Bible means exactly what it says. So thank you so much. Put the resources to use. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Oh my goodness, is that not the best? That is so much fun. Wow. <laughs> it is such a treat to have Bruce and Robin here today.